This podcast is brought to you by Honey Badger. Let's face it, your code is going to have errors. Even code written by an amazing, outstanding, meticulous developer such as you. I know. But when bad things happen, it's nice to know that Honey Badger has your back. Honey Badger makes you a DevOps hero by combining error, uptime, and cron monitoring into a single, easy-to-use platform, saving you time and cash. Sustain listeners get 30% off for six months. Simply mention Sustain when signing up, and they'll apply the discount to your account. No credit card required. Use Honey Badger. It'll make your DevOps awesome. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Should I skip the last day of junior high to go to this convention about Linux? Maybe, maybe I should. I, I don't. Oh, wait, I could ask someone else who's been in this exact situation. That's our guest today, Tom Calloway. Tom, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Excellent. Another panelist we have on today is Eric Berry. Eric, how are you doing? You know, I'm doing great. Good to be here. Good. I'm also doing great. So that's three greats in a row. Awesome. So Tom Calloway, you live in North Carolina. You're currently working for AWS, but that's a pretty new job. Can you tell us what you did before that? So before AWS, I spent almost 20 years at Red Hat doing pretty much every job they had at one point or another. I started off in support. I went from that into solutions architecture, which is basically sales. And then I moved into release engineering. I was an engineering manager for a very long time for the Fedora community. And then I moved into doing university outreach to talk to students about open source. And in the end, I was more in a focused employment brand role. Wow. Okay. So that's a, that's a long, long career. How did you start there? <laughs> that's a, well, so I started off at Red Hat sort of because I knew the right folks. And that's, you know, how a lot of people get their jobs, I suppose. But for me, it was, I started going to Linux users groups. I had people that said, hey, you know, there are other people who are doing the crazy sorts of things that you're doing with Linux, and you can come and meet them. And it turns out that if you do that in North Carolina in the late 90s, that's all Red Hat people. And so I would go to these Linux users groups. I would present on something that I had learned about 15 or 20 minutes before the meeting, and then have all the Red Hat people in the room tell me how little I knew about anything, which was you know, it could have been incredibly demoralizing, but for me, it was just like energizing because all of those people were like willing to share the things that they knew and the things they were working on. And it was fascinating. And I just kept peeling back layers of that onion and discovering more and more things that I wanted to get into. So one of the questions I often have for people like you who've been in the open source game for decades, right? I kind of did some code back in the early 2000s, but you could also say I was kind of just on message boards trying to figure out how to put a bold tag into a PHP comment box. You know, that's, is that code? No, no, I don't think it is. And so today when we think of open source and you ask the average developer on the street, I'm going to guess they've probably been in it for three, four years, maybe even newer than that. They know about GitHub. That's where they store their code. They know about green boxes and having code streaks and they're trying to figure out how to make React work, not really knowing what it is. And you have a much longer career. You were there before GitHub. You were there before 
probably even Git became mainstream. Can you tell us a bit about what like the main changes you've seen and how that's affected things? Well, you know, when I started, we if there was code in a repo, it was in CVS if you were lucky. So, I mean, there's definitely been some massive changes in the way that people do open source from when we started. I think when we started, it was tarballs and FTP servers for the most part, that when you had code that you were ready to share with other people, you would send it to an FTP server. And if somebody wanted to make a patch, they would email that patch to you. I think you can look at the Linux kernel mailing list, which has been around longer than I have, and the way that they structured their behaviors and the way that they still operate you know, outside of Git is the same way that a lot of open source development was done when I got started. It was very much IRC and email for communication. Sometimes you'd find web forums. But I think that one of the big differences that I've seen is that when I got started, one of the first things that people told me when I joined Red Hat was, don't get too comfortable. This is all going to end. This is all going to be done in a little while. This is never going to make it. We're all having fun and we're writing it out as long as we possibly can, but we don't have any intentions in a year or in two years that any of us will still be doing any of this open source stuff. We're, you know, we're just trying to take advantage of it while it lasts. Because when I joined Red Hat, there was no semblance of a reasonable business model at all. We made more money selling hats on our website than we did selling software. When people would buy a box copy of Red Hat Linux, not Enterprise Linux, Red Hat Linux, the old, old stuff, you know, places that don't exist anymore, like CompUSA and Circuit City, and uh, I think Best Buy is the only one. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All of those computer software stores, the way that those retail arrangements were arranged was such that they would keep us on the shelf for the minimum period determined by contract and then immediately throw our stuff in the bargain bin. And so in some of these arrangements, we were on the shelf for a week <laughs> and then we would go in the bargain bin and anything that was in the bargain bin, they would get the bulk of the money from. And so more often than not, people would find our stuff in the bargain bin, think they were supporting Red Hat, buy a copy. We would get like a dollar. <laughs> the other $29 would go to the retailer. We made more profit from the hat. So we were actually telling people, no, stop buying our software. Please go buy our hat so we can pay salary this week. No one at Red Hat was quite sure how we were going to make this last. And, and I think today there are legitimate business models that exist around open source. Red Hat certainly has developed one. There's a lot of other ways to do it. But I don't think that anyone at Red Hat thinks that open source is going to stop being a thing tomorrow or that Red Hat is in serious risk anymore. How many people are at Red Hat these days? Do you know? I know they like to keep that actual count kind of vague, but I, I think it's roughly in the, I want to say they have like 20,000 people at this point or something, probably more. And when you joined... When I joined, they brought all of the people in North America who weren't on a sales call into a room and introduced me. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was very eye-opening for me because I had always had this vision of Red Hat as this super big, super professional company. And then I joined it and it was, you know, held together with duct tape and chewing gum and twine. And, you know, it was, there was structure there, but it was, it was still very startup. And it was very, very different than what I thought it was going to be when I joined. So what year did you join? 
I joined in February of 2001. And how old was the company when you joined? So uh, you're going to make me look this up. Looks like it's 93. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It, it had been around, but at the first few years of Red Hat, they were incorporated in an apartment. <laughs> if that tells you how many people were working for them. And I think it was only when they came in one morning and the toilet from the apartment above had burst and flooded their office that they knew they had to move out of that arrangement. I mean, again, Red Hat started off as, as a bookstore because that's how software was sold in the early 90s. And they evolved into more of a, a software developer when it became clear that there was opportunities to do more than simply repackage and rebrand Linux, to go a little bit beyond what was there at the time and to add customizations and help them stand out. I think that the first CEO of Red Hat Bob Young was very visionary in that regard, that he saw that there was a huge opportunity to have a brand that would be valuable in a broader sense, that would be less about Linux and more about Red Hat. And I think that ultimately that's, you know, key for success for a lot of companies. I mean, if they had just been generic Linux, then I don't think they would have had anywhere near the impact that they had today. At what point during uh, when you were working there did did everybody start believing that, okay, maybe this is something, maybe this can survive? Because I would imagine that working in a company where you just, nobody knows how long it's going to last. We're in our heyday right now, but it's going to eventually go away. What happened to make that idea change that, okay, maybe this is something, this will become something huge? Well, I think it's a little complicated, but I'll try and sort of tease that out. So one of the big things that impacted Red Hat early in its life was the dot-com era. Red Hat was a dot-com IPO, and a lot of the people who had lived through that watched the bubble burst around them. Every single other member of the class that went public at the same time as Red Hat, when it was sort of, you see these clumps go public in little clumps during the dot-com window, and every one of them is gone. And every one of them was dying or dead by the time I joined. And so all of these people who were there at Red Hat expected that to be their next step was, well, that was fun. We're going to go, you know, we're just going to be the last one out. We'll turn the lights off when we go. And when Matthew Zulu took over, they brought him in specifically to sort of stem that off. And they really said, look, we have some, there's a lot of potential for this company, for what we're doing. We think we can live through this. And one of the big changes that Matthew made was that he created a focused offering that was targeted towards enterprise. Before then, our, our sort of approach had been just casual user, someone who would pick it up and run it all the way up to, on the high end, maybe a small, medium business. And there was no money in that. And it was very clear that we weren't getting support revenue based on that model at all. And Matthew was really smart. And he basically said, look, the customers that are keeping us afloat are these enterprise customers. We should pivot our business to focus on them and to provide offerings that they can consume. And I think that was the big insight was is we need to figure out a way to take open source and not compromise open source, but do it in a way that big companies can actually sort of slip it right into their existing systems. I think for a lot of the potential customers that I talked to, because you know at this point, I moved into more of a sales role at Red Hat is that we would get this feedback very constantly of, we think you're doing interesting things, but we can't explain how to bill it to our accountants. 
<laughs> and you know, they want to know how many software licenses it's going to be. They want to know how many client access licenses it's going to be. And you know, so we basically took an open source approach and sort of shaped it and molded it with you know Play-Doh and said, this is a license. You buy how many licenses you need for how many computers you have. And they would go, oh, okay, we understand that. Let's do that. And then they would have open source in their environment in an official capacity. Because I think a lot of folks were running Skunkworks, LAMP stacks in their environment. They just weren't telling anybody. And if anybody ever asked what that computer in the corner was doing, they'd be like, oh, it's just backups, you know. And it, it was running their web server. And they didn't mention this to anybody else. So I distinctly remember going on site, one of my early visits to a customer, and they told us about the years they were running Windows as their web server, but it was actually an Apache web server that just had all of the identifiers changed. So that if anybody queried it, they claimed it was Windows, and all of their bosses thought it was Windows. But it was actually, you know, it was actually Debian running on <laughs> something. And it was just fascinating. It was like, wow, okay, so you play games too. I mean, <laughs> but I think for us, that change of going after the enterprise market, of really saying, this is our focus. A lot of people at Red Hat didn't like that very much. There's a lot of people that left right then. They were like, okay, this is not what I signed up for. But the rest of us who stayed really saw it change to something where big companies committed in big ways to our stuff. And they didn't just do it because they liked open source. I think almost none of our original customers did it because they liked open source. They liked it because they were getting a much better price performance solution on hardware that wasn't locked into any one vendor. I mean, this was basically the Unix wars was us coming in and massively disrupting, you know, HP and IBM and Sun and just saying, you know, we want to give control back to you, the customer, and not have it all in our environment. If we do a poor job at what we do, go find somebody else who can do the exact same thing with the exact same code. And once we got those customers rolling and once we started getting people who started asking, hey, we want to certify, you know, our software running on your platform, that was, that was game changing. And we really were able to look at that and say, okay, there's something here. We, we have enough to sustain ourselves that we're not going to, you know, go back to selling hats. So what's interesting to me is that you pitched this to enterprise customers who just didn't know much better, but it's still developers who are running this stuff. So how did you pitch it to the developers that they wanted to get this? And then how did they pitch up to their managers, right? I, that's, a, that's a great question. I think that, you know, we were really not having to pitch to developers so much. I think that if you go back and you look at the state of, you know, what people were wanting to develop on, I mean, again, this is before so many of the languages and frameworks that are popular existed. It was basically, you know, Java, you know, J2EE was the hot thing. And no one really wanted to be running J2EE on Windows. They wanted to be running it on a Unix. And so it was really common to see, you know, Solaris and, you know, either Sunstack or, you know, one of the other stacks that was out there doing Java. And so they were having to push back against, you know, the cost of Unix. They wanted to be developing in a Unix environment, but the cost was high because you're talking about specialized hardware, you're talking about expensive licenses. Windows was cheaper for a lot of these cases. And so they were having to push back against this battle of why can't we just have a standardized Windows license for everything we run from server room to desktop? And their pushback was, well, why don't we just do Linux? It's, it's even cheaper than the Windows. And it's just like the Unix that we love. And 
that was what was opening the door for us in a lot of these environments was those developers making that case of Linux is just a cheaper Unix. We could do that. And, you know, I think that over time, it certainly shifted to a point where it became, okay, great. You know, everyone loves Linux. Everyone loves Unix. You're going to have to convince us a little more to get the developer case. But in those early days, they were advocating for us before we even had a product to fill that void. So you mentioned that there are legitimate business models nowadays that don't just revolve around selling hats. One of them is selling good stuff to enterprise people and, and figuring out how to ship your products so that people in enterprise could just sign off on it and just have a good time and then give that down to their, you know, sysadmins to actually go and implement the stuff. Another one is we'll offer this, but then we'll come and work on it. And if you could find someone else to work on it, that's fine. But we know how to do it already. So, you know, it's just if you want the expertise, come and hire us. As far as I know, those are the two main strategies still employed by Red Hat. Would you say that's accurate? Would you say there's, there's other strategies that might work? I think, we, I think there's another strategy that works that Red Hat's done pretty successfully, and that's been more focused consulting. I think that people who want a very specific solution built for them, they're not looking for something that is built off the shelf. They really want a customized environment, and they want to own it at the end of the day. They don't want to be you know, hooked into a vendor who says, I wrote you this piece of inventory management software, and you can just pay me for it forever. They, most of the big companies that have been around for a while have a couple of these that they've been locked into for various reasons, and they don't enjoy it. And so it has been a huge opportunity for Red Hat to really come in and build these sort of custom solutions for people and then say, okay, all of this is yours and it's open source at the end of the day, you can take it and you can hand it to someone else without having to worry about what we think and they can add on to it. You can staff in-house to build onto it. You can contract with another company or with us to build onto it. And we're happy to come back at any point in the game and pick up and keep working on it. And I think that a lot of customers enjoy having that flexibility in that sort of an arrangement where they know that, yes, this code is going to be open source, the second, and then in some cases, the second they distribute it, it becomes more open source. It's open source, but they don't ever share it. We did a lot of, a lot of point of sale systems in those early days at Red Hat as very customized models. I think Home Depot is one of our big reference customers that is pretty obvious that if you look at any of their POS systems today, there's a lot of Linux hiding in that stuff. And we also did some, some work for like, the in-flight entertainment systems on airplanes. I'm sorry, I haven't been on an airplane in a very long time. So <laughs> that, oh, yes. that, I know, you know, when you see them crash, you can watch them boot Linux. And if you were Red Hat in those early days, you recognize some of the trademarks of our early environment. You're like, oh, I remember when we fixed that bug and just scrolls by. So, but yeah, I think that consulting has been a really big key for Red Hat success because for better or worse, lots of customers have, they walk into every sort of engagement thinking we're, you know, a unique unicorn and you couldn't possibly solve our problem with a standard solution. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's you know, worth pushing back on it a little bit, but a lot of those cases you just say, okay, great, let's build you a custom solution. It costs this much and this is many people and it's this much time. Red Hat seemed to really lead the charge in making open source a core part of the company and the culture. Can you speak to that? I know you had open source day events and I believe they even had some employees full-time on staff just to maintain open source projects. What was it like working with a company that had that type of focus of giving back to the community? It was, it was super empowering to be in a place where open was the default. Whenever 
anyone would suggest doing something that wasn't open source inside Red Hat, just there was this overwhelming blowback. Like, what is wrong with you? Go work somewhere else. <laughs> and I think that it was really freeing to never have to ask for permission to do open source work. One of the things that's unique about Red Hat is that the employment contracts are structured in a way such that they explicitly say Red Hat doesn't own the open source work that you do. You own it. You can go out and do whatever you want, even if that open source ends up being competitive for us. Like if you go out and you contribute to SUSE, <laughs> that's great. We understand how open source works and we're not going to say, hey, you need to stop working on SUSE because that competes with us. And I think that makes the folks that work at Red Hat, they, they can take a deep breath. They can put a lot of those shields down that some people who worked in other places had to build up of, I'm not going to talk about what I'm working on. I'm definitely not going to talk about what I'm working on in my off hours. At Red Hat, it was always just this flowing conversation about anything and everything regarding technology. And for me, it was just amazing because I could just find someone that was doing just incredible work and say, okay, what are you working on? What, what, are, you, what are you doing there? How is, that, how is that even possible? And Red Hat made the smart decision to hire a lot of people who were doing really key work in Linux and just pay them to do that work. Like it wasn't, okay, let's go hire David Miller and convert him away from the networking guru and make him, you know, write patches for something else. He could have, and you know, he, if they paid him enough, he might've, but they didn't make him do that. They said, we recognize the value in having you actively contribute upstream and that will be your job. There were people who worked for Red Hat and probably some that still do that never ran Red Hat the entire time they were there. Like they were like, oh, I run Slack or oh, I run Debian. There were people who ran Ubuntu. I mean, it got to the point where I had to sort of gently remind some of our people when we were out selling some of the other essays. I'd be like, look, I don't care if you run Ubuntu, but let's not have the logo pop up when we're doing a presentation, <laughs> you know, and stuff like that. I think that the culture of open is so important to Red Hat that if if we hadn't been built the way we had been built, I don't think we would have survived. I don't think that we would have lasted through the dot-coms. We certainly wouldn't have been acquired by IBM. And I keep saying we, even though I'm not there anymore, because I, you know Red Hat really is a family culture. And people there legitimately believe what they're doing beyond just, I'm making money doing it. And I think that folks who join just to make money at Red Hat, they do not last. They 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 go somewhere else. It's the people who come and they're like, oh my goodness, I get to do open source all day long that, that stay, that really thrive in that environment. I mean, I was hired to be a support tech, the lowest level support tech possible. And I was able to just by being curious and by being passionate, move into roles all the way up into the CTO's office. And a lot of companies that would have been impossible. Let's face it. Your code is going to have errors. Even code written by such an outstanding, meticulous, totally awesome developer such as you. But when bad things happen, it's nice to know that Honey Badger has your back. Honey Badger makes you a DevOps hero by combining error, uptime, and cron monitoring into a single, easy-to-use platform, saving you time and cash. Honey Badger monitors and sends error alerts in real time, with all the context needed to see what's causing the error and where it's hiding in your code so you can quickly fix it and get on with your day. The included uptime and cron monitoring also lets you know when your external services are having issues 
or your background jobs go AWOL or silently fail. Go to HoneyBadger.io and discover how Star, Josh, and Ben created the 100% bootstrapped monitoring solution. Why is this important? Self-funding means they only answer to you, the developer, rather than a venture capital overlord. Sustained listeners get 30% off for six months. Simply mention Sustain when signing up, and they'll apply the discount directly to your account. No credit card required. Use Honey Badger. It'll make your DevOps awesome. So you mentioned that, you know, everything was in the open and anyone can go out and take stuff and Suzo could be around in Ubuntu and you know, people could use whatever. And I think it's really great to hear that and to hear that that worked for a company and it worked really well. But I'm curious, were there any times when it didn't work well? When competition oh, yeah. did get out of hand and being in the open ended up screwing over something? I think that there were certainly times where things got contentious. I think that one of the big examples of that is what Oracle did. Oracle was one of our earliest partners to Red Hat. They were one of the first real serious applications to certify on our platform. We built custom versions of Red Hat Linux just to run Oracle. And we, we, we sort of marketed like the six, Red Hat Linux 6.2 Enterprise Edition was just to run Oracle. And at some point, Oracle decided that they could do a better job than we could. And they took all of our source code and they scraped our name off it and they put their name on it. And they made a lot of noise and they were a much bigger company than us. And they were like, look, we're bigger. We have more customers. We'll just give this away and destroy Red Hat. And it was very, like, it was, this was Oracle's playbook. Like, they, if you go back and you look at the history of Oracle, Oracle doesn't have any software that they sell currently that they wrote themselves. Everything that they sell, they acquired, or they found a way to get their hands on it. And open source was like, well, we don't even have to bother to acquire them. We'll just take it all. We'll just offer it out. Uh, I would go to customers and they would say, oh, well, Oracle just gave us the Linux for free and they're going to support it for free. And, you know, it's really difficult to sort of have those conversations with people when the only reason that they were talking to you in the first place is because you were cheaper. And I think for us, we never really sold that way. We never really sold on it's cheap. It was always about the value proposition that we could give to our customers. And when Oracle tried to do this solely, they didn't really understand open source. And I'm not convinced that Oracle understands it today either. There are certainly people within Oracle that get it. But I think as a whole, they don't. And when they tried to sort of attack the model that they assumed we were built on, which was cheap, we just sort of said, hey, if you want to go get your support from Oracle, that's cool. Go ahead. Do it. You know, you already have support from Oracle. You know how good it is. <laughs> that's really what you want more of in your stack. By all means, go to it. I think we lost very few customers to that strategy. and. All it did was cause us heartburn of, oh my gosh, is this going to destroy everything that we've built? And I think we sort of said, no, it won't. We just double down on what we know to work. We just keep being open. We could have closed big chunks of what we were working on and saying, well, we don't want Oracle to have this. And at the end of the day, the most we ever ended up doing was playing some games with where we kept our kernel patches. Like we didn't make it easy for them to just suck the whole kernel down. Like we did, we did silly games where, you know, there was just, a repo that was pre-patched and all the code was there and you couldn't just tease a single change out of it easily. And even then it was like, we knew Oracle had smart people and that this wasn't going to be our real barrier to them. 
And it was more of us just thumbing our nose at them in a general direction. I mean, we did things like they called it, I believe their, their campaign was Unbreakable Linux. And within a week, we had unfakeable Linux shirts that we all had that we were just wearing around. And that's all we, you know, that was the extent to which we were concerned by that because we would much rather have a company like an Oracle that was contributing to open source and competing with us for the same business. Because at the end of the day, we knew that there was code that was being written by SUSE that was amazing. There was code that was being written by a ton of players in the space that was really, really valuable. And we were using that. This was a time where, you know, a lot of the kernel functionality that we take for granted was still being aggressively innovated. Like the way that we do threading in the Linux kernel was very contentious for a while. And ultimately, you know, the open source model of having everybody involved in that conversation at the same time led it to be something where we said, okay, we've gotten into a shape where we're happy with this approach. And SUSE switched to it. There were things that SUSE wrote that we switched to system decisions that we made that we then backed out of later and stepped away from. And there were fossil decisions that SUSE made that they ended up backing away from. And I think that we were all in that space together and we were all sort of openly discussing what we were doing from a technology perspective. And that just made, we always sort of, frenemy was the word we like to use. You know, yes, we don't want them to get all of our sales. We do want to continue to make money. But at the end of the day, we'd much rather have a sale go to SUSE or go to an open source competitor than to an Oracle or a Microsoft. Awesome. That's one of the questions I have is you've been working for Red Hat for a long time, or you had been working for Red Hat for a long time. Were there any projects when you thought I could go and make a thing out of this, but I'm not going to because I, I like the family community I have here, right? What would you say to developers who have something and then want to go out and make something out of it? Do you think that there's models outside of like sticking with large open source companies to sustainably live a middle-class life? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of, it, it's really hard to do. I don't, I don't want to make light of it and say, oh, it's easy. You can do what Red Hat did. I think that Red Hat was the right people in the right place at the right time with the right seed funding to get it done. And if you tried to spin it up in any other ways with any of those factors different, it easily could have gone a different direction. I think that every startup is risky. I think being an open source startup is riskier, not because of open source, but because of prevailing attitudes around VC. I think a lot of VCs want to be able to quantify everything that they can list as a possible return. And for a lot of them, that's intellectual property is to be able to say, okay, I have this IP that the startup built, even if they collapse, I can sell this IP to someone else. And it's really difficult for that. If all of that is open source to say, oh, well, I can sell all of this open source to someone else. Well, why would we buy it? We could just download it off the internet when you're dead. And so what you saw in a lot of the startups that are happening is they would be dependent on open source and then sort of build like a proprietary bit around it. And that would be the IP that the VC would value. And that would be how we got our funding. And that would be how we would continue. And that's easy. That's not controversial in any way. It's also incredibly boring to me. <laughs> I have no interest in any of that because I have been around long enough to see that every time someone tries to do that open core model, if there's value in the core, the community will scrape off the proprietary layer and build a better open one. And it might not happen immediately, but it will happen. And if it doesn't happen, then your open core is just garbage and no one cares about it anyway. <laughs> and so I think that you really have to be willing to have 
the freedom to be open and to have backing partners that say, yes, we believe in your capacity to deliver value beyond the bits, that you can build relationships with customers, you can provide value to them above and beyond the software, that you can solve problems. Because that's what makes someone successful, the capacity to solve problems that people have than anything else. If you write amazing software and you can never apply it in a real world scenario, your company will die. If you cannot figure out how to compete meaningfully with the software, it does not matter how good it is, your company will die. And Red Hat very early on figured out how to compete meaningfully, how to deliver value above and beyond the bits. And even when we got to places where people forked enterprise Linux, all of the CentOS and the scientific Linux and that whole ecosystem of people who said, we liked not having to pay for your best Linux. We never really ever tried to shut that down. Anytime someone at Red Hat would say, hey, we should probably go out and try and kill that. No, absolutely not. That is a place where we have a potential to show value. If we can find someone who's running CentOS or Scientific or any of those forks, and we can show them value, they'll pay us. They may not pay us a lot, but they will pay us something. And every time they do that, isn't it better to have them run CentOS than to have them run Solaris or to have them run Windows or to have them run something where they get end up with a customer who's locked into a bad model? Uh, I had lots of really amazing customer engagements where customers would say, we, let me, let me back up. I'll tell a story that, that I think illustrates this point. So we had been trying to sell to a bank in the Midwest US for a long time, and we had never really been able to get them to even have a conversation with us. They were an IBM shop. Everything they did was IBM. And so they had AIX, they had S390s, they had iSeries, they had the only things that weren't Unix in their data center were air conditioners. And it was all IBM. And they, they just weren't interested in hearing about anything else that didn't come from IBM. And so at some point, our partnership with IBM progressed enough that IBM decided to invite us in to have a conversation about the future of Linux in this environment. And so we were thrilled. So we showed up for this meeting and there's three people from the customer. There are six people from IBM and there's my sales rep and me from Red Hat. And we sit down and IBM gives a presentation about what their first Linux is going to be. And it was Linux on P, P series, which had existed for about three months. <laughs> and it was DB2, which had been ported to Linux on power for about 15 minutes. And they were just like, this is the solution. We'll go forward. Everybody smiles. And then the customer turns and looks at, at the two Red Hat guys in the room. And my sales rep at this point had enough of an understanding for who I was that he was already kicking me under the table and whispering, shut up, shut up, shut up. Because we made more money when we sold the IBM variant of Red Hat Enterprise Linux than we did if we sold the Intel one. But I knew this was going to fail. It was going to just massively suck. And so I just said, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> and then the customer's like, well, why wouldn't you do that? And the IBM people are like, <gasps> and it, it was, and I said, you know what? Well, here's what will happen if you do this. 
you get all of this running after a lot of pain. It either will crash on you immediately when you put it under any load, or it will perform much, much worse than DB2 running on AIX on the exact same hardware. And the IBM guys are going to turn to you and say, well, I guess you're just not ready for Linux. And it's going to go back on the shelf for another five years until we have a conversation again. And I said, I don't want your first engagement with Linux and open source to be one that is doomed to fail. And they turned to the IBM people and the IBM people were like, we don't think the Red Hat people know what they're talking about. Security escorted us out of the building, not because I threw furniture everywhere. It was just they were like, you can go now. <laughs> and they took us out. And, and on the way out, the, the one person in the meeting who was an advocate for open source and for Linux and their environment, he said, I'm really sorry. You're right. I can't say anything because I want my job, but you're absolutely right. And I hope they heard you. And so IBM called up SUSE and SUSE was like, yeah, we'll do it. <laughs> so they rolled it out. Three months later, I got a call from the executive who was in the meeting and he said, you know, it's really funny because IBM forgot that you told us exactly what they would say when this failed. And that was exactly what they said when this failed. No one has ever told the truth to us and walked away from money. Nice. And you, and you did. And, and we, want to, we want to have you come back and tell us what's not going to suck. <laughs> and so we went back into that, into that arrangement and we said, okay, where does it hurt? And they would be like, well, we're having problem, you know, doing payroll. And I'd be like, okay, explain that. And they went on to explain that, that their payroll systems were so slow that sometimes it would be a full day before it would finish processing them. And people weren't getting checks until after the day after they were expecting to get their checks. And this was obviously a really big problem because people were like, look, I have to pay my mortgage. I have to pay bills. Didn't pay me until the next day. And I made assumptions on when you were going to pay me and you need to fix this. And I said, well, what does it run on? And they were like, well, it's a Java application. And I was like, well, you're IBM, so WebSphere. And they were like, yes. And I was like running on AIX. And they were like, yes. I was like, cool. Let's put this on Intel, on Red Hat. And we can bring the same version of WebSphere over. You don't have to rewrite your app at all. We'll just drop it in. You see great performance. You see great reliability in your tests as well. They were like, okay, we don't have any Intel in our server space. And they were like, let's call up IBM X. And I was like, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I was like, if you want to do that, that's fine. But I can get the Dell guy to be out here, you know, in an hour and drop off some servers on your loading dock for proof of concept. And they're like, oh, we don't, we don't have a relationship with Dell. I'm like, he's not going to sell them to you. He's just going to drop them off on your loading dock and you can test with them. And they'd be like, he'll do that? I was like, yeah, pretty sure he's done that a couple of times for us. We called the local Dell rep. He, he drops off a couple of 2U servers on their loading dock. He makes them sign a piece of paper that says if they don't want them, that he'll come get them. If they do want them, he'll offer to sell them to them at a good price. And then he leaves. He didn't even sales pitch them beyond that. We put them into production. We saw their time go from over a day to under, I think it was under three hours. We got the whole processing load done. We didn't tune it. We didn't tweak it. It was just install, put WebSphere on it, throw the app in, hook it in, run it. And from that point on, they were just like, okay, tell us what else is broken. And we would just have these amazing conversations with them where I'd be like, nope, can't do that. Oh yeah, we could do that. And we were sort of pick and choose. And they ended up having an environment where they phased out a lot of their relationship with IBM, not based on the software, not based on the tech, but based on the, the games that IBM was trying to play with them to get more entrenched. That team that we met with was the IBM P-Series team. P-Series team was at war with the Z-Series team, was at war with the X-Series team. They were all fighting with each other. And that was why they pitched the way they did, was they didn't want X to come in with Linux. And so they preemptively tried to kill it by showing how bad their Linux environment was in that space. And that 
value that we delivered to the customer had little to do with how good open source was or how much better, you know, 2.6 was than 2.4. It was all about our willingness to walk away from that easy money and say, this isn't going to work very well. You shouldn't do it. So you're saying that in open source or in business in general, being honest, open and providing value to the customer is the best marketing strategy. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, <laughs> it, it, is, it got to the point where, you know, that was the number one thing I was teaching the solutions architects because I was one of the first essays at Red Hat. And I basically taught a whole generation of them. This is how we sell. Forget everything you may have learned anywhere else. Number yep. one, we will not lie to the customer. If something yep. works badly, we'll say it works badly. We will then say, well, we can try and work with you to make it better if they're really keen on going down that path. But we're not going to say it makes toast when it doesn't. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been really great to hear your stories. It's been lovely to hear how it was in the beginning and how it is now and how it hasn't really changed. Human nature is still the same. Don't <laughs> lie to people. Be honest and do what you can. And open source meshes really well with that, which is why we're here at all. Where can people find more about you on the internet? Do you have a Twitter handle? Do you have a blog? Can they email you? So I, I do have a Twitter handle. It is S-P-O-T-F-O-S-S. You can follow me or DM me or send me weird pictures. All of that is cool. If you search my name, you will find a very old and poorly maintained blog that predates even Red Hat. I'm very bad at blogging, but I'm very good at tweeting. So if you want to hear random things about open source or licensing or any of the other things that catch my interest, I'm happy to have you follow and engage in those conversations. We had a fantastic conversation on my Twitter this morning about what you would do with 10K to donate it to FOSS and how that would be the most impactful. Love it. Thank you so much. All right. Now it's time to go on to Spotlight, where we talk about cool projects that think deserve a bit more love. Eric Berry, what do you got for us today? Uh, so this one's not a project that needs more love, but I think it needs more visibility. When I was running CodeFund, Red Hat reached out to me and we were going to run a campaign. So for those listening, CodeFund was an ad network for technologists. And when they came to me, I thought that they wanted to sell products. But the whole concept was, no, 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 no. We don't want to sell products. We're not wanting to run a campaign for products. We just want people to get stuff for free. So we set up these campaigns all around the developer. So the website is developers.redhat.com. And if you are a Java developer, if you are in Kubernetes, if you're doing any microservices, if you're doing containers, there are so many free resources there. Red Hat's giving away tons of books. They're giving away tons of cheat sheets. And it's a really, really amazing resource. So that's what I would like to draw attention to, developers.redhat.com. Thank you so much. I want to draw attention to a very small project that I've been hacking on for the last few hours. I've been using it actually for the past two seasons. And I say seasons because it's called Vesper. It's by a guy called Harold Mills, who is an independent developer who has been funded by someone, I forget who, to build this. And what it does is that I have a bucket on my deck that records birds flying over my house every migration season during the night. And so I have eight hours from last night of recorded audio from the end of dusk until the beginning of dawn. And going through that manually would just take freaking ages. And so what Vesper does is it goes and identifies flight calls 
that the birds were doing as like traffic monitoring. Don't bump into me. I'm going this way while they're flying over my house and it identifies the calls, picks them out of the sound stream and lets me look at them and try to figure out what kind of species they are. It's super early stages, but also does a great job right now. I thought last night was the first night. I thought maybe I'd get one or two calls for migration. I got 147 different seep calls alone flying over my house. And so migration is on for this season and I'm super excited. I just bought a NUC to run this bucket all the time, you know, installed windows on it, which was really unfortunate. But this is like a whole different area of birding I really love. And Harold Mills Vesper program really helps me out. So I love niche programs like that because it's just the spirit of open source. Tom Calloway, what do you got? Well, I think my thing right now is Octoprint. I do a ton of 3D printing and Octoprint just is a game changer for me. Like going from slicing and working, you know, all in these different tools, all of it goes into Octoprint. My current project is to try to get it set up with a camera so that I can do time-lapse video of the printing. And Octoprint just makes this so much easier. And it's so really well documented and hackable that you can just take it in all sorts of different ways. I just look at it and my eyes just light up with all the possibilities. I, I know that I shouldn't make it do LED progress bars on the side of my printer, but I want to and it's there and I can make that happen. So Octoprint is uh, what I would want to put a spotlight on. Love it. Again, thank you so much for talking. Thank you for being on the show and looking forward to seeing you around. Yeah, Tom, that was great. Thank you, man. Thank you.